Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. We're the podcast that gathers up UCL's multi-talented researchers from an extraordinary range of disciplines, knitting them together to better understand the pandemic and its many impacts. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster and UCL alumna and for the past six months, the host of this award-winning podcast. Last week, it was the impact of coronavirus on the US election. This week, we're firmly home again and right at the centre of the raging row about regional lockdowns, the rationale behind them and whether or not they'll work. To shine light rather than heat on these vexed questions, three fabulous guests join me in today's episode from the Institute for Global Health, the Bartlett School of Planning and the UCL Department of Geography. My first guest is the peerless Dame Anne Johnson. Anne is a Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology, Co-Director of UCL Health of the Public, sponsors indeed of this podcast, thank you very much, and she's recently been appointed as President of the Academy of Medical Sciences. With her work on the NatSARS Sexual Attitude Survey, Epidemiology and Prevention of HIV AIDS and much more, Anne, as a colleague said recently to me, is probably the nearest thing to a social scientist that medicine has. She's been at the forefront of the UCL and Academy response to the COVID-19 pandemic, including the development of the Academy of Medical Science report, preparing for a challenging winter 2020 to 2021. With hindsight, that title is a master of understatement. My second guest is Professor James Cheshire, Professor of Geographic Information and Cartography and Director of the UCL QSTEP Centre, a quantitative data skills training centre for UCL social science students. James uses big data to understand the way the world works and interesting data visualisation techniques to help explain it. He's the co-author of London, the Information Capital, and Where the Animals Go, and recipient of numerous awards, including the prestigious British Cartographic Society Award. And last but not least, my third guest is Professor John Tomney. John is a professor of urban and regional planning who researches the development of cities and how public policy is used to manage them. He's published over 100 books and articles on the subject of regional planning and is a regular commentator on this subject in the UK media. So let's start this episode by talking about the new tiered system. Anne, what's the rationale behind it? And do you think it'll work? Well, the rationale behind the tiered system is that where you have very different levels of infection incurring in different parts of the country, you need to vary your response in order to the level of infection. And and clearly, in doing that, you're trying to balance the, if you like, the restrictions on individuals and their lives and titrate them against the severity of the public health response. The question then is the critical one, does it work? Now, regrettably, in most of the areas where there have been higher levels of restrictions, we're still, well, in, in all areas, really, we're still seeing very significant rises in infection. We tend to seize at glimmers of hope that perhaps in the northeast um, there is some flattening of that rise, but generally there is a continuing rise throughout the country. So the debate that's going on now is if you realise that, as in a sense we predicted, is perhaps too strong a word, but yes, pointed out in July that winter was going to be a time for many reasons where the virus would spread more effectively. And if you think 
you get the first sense that you might be losing control and the R is going up very substantially. There is an argument that you must intervene sooner rather than later because once you let the thing go, it is very much more difficult to bring the levels of infection down. And that's part of the big debate that's going on. And all that, of course, has to be balanced against livelihoods and other aspects of health. Do you think that in some places we will be able to get it back or do you think that there'll have to be even more restrictions? Well, I think, I mean, I've not been privy to all the the most recent modelling, but I think there are concerns, and we've heard the chief medical officer say it, that, you know, these restrictions are unlikely to be adequate or sufficient to really bring the R down below one, which is what we're trying to do. And therefore, there is now a lot of talk about having some kind of implementation of restrictions that would last for a a relatively short period of time, talkers of circuit breakers and so on, in order to get back some control. But I think we have to be realistic with everybody that that does help you to to you know to bring the level of infection down. That's very important and stop you overwhelming the health system. But of course, as soon as you stop those restrictions, you've got to really maintain as much as possible of all the social distancing and other other elements because you're you're once again you'll be increasing contact patterns which is what will drive the the virus up again so what you're trying to do i guess with these circuit breakers um is to bring that level of infection down and then be able to sort of get back to some reasonable life but being very careful and then recognizing that you might have to do it again and that is the problem with this virus which is so easily transmissible and you know very difficult to get under control so i do think we need to be thinking about the long term if we get um, a vaccine in the spring, uh, which everybody is very much hoping, we have to also recognise that that is not going to be a silver bullet. And we really are in the business of trying to collectively bring ourselves back together again to all contribute to the various elements of intervention which brought together, we hope, might push the rate down. But I think we tend to be too much stuck on the one thing that's going to fix it and there isn't one thing that's going to fix it it's the combination of things we can do which um you know we have to do to try and keep things under control so it's about managing it and living with it in a way that doesn't allow it to get completely out of control but also recognizes that we can't stamp it out completely I think, I mean, it's, it, this is such a, you know, this is a really a question that I don't think we're being clear with everybody or perhaps with ourselves about you know, what we're trying to achieve. There clearly are countries who are in the business of stamping it out completely, um, uh, you know, including China and New Zealand. But actually, with the level of infection now we've got across Europe, stamping out a virus that is so infectious from a society at this stage, I think is going to be um, you know, extremely difficult. We've only ever done it for two or three, well, even, even you know, one or two viruses uh, that we've eradicated from human societies, notably smallpox. So we are going to be having to look at this in the longer run. And I, I think the question really is when a new virus is introduced into a society, it often has, you know, these incredibly serious effects. And over time, uh, if we can manage to keep 
some level of control over it. And particularly if we can push it down to lower levels, we, we are more in the business of living with it than, uh, than completely getting, getting rid of it, I think, it's a reality. Let's go to you, James. Do you think the tiered system is working? I think the data are telling us that the numbers are still going up in quite a few regions where there are uh, higher tiers. And I also think that it's clear that the scientific advice implies that we may be going for uh, slightly tougher restrictions within some of these tiers, or at least at the top tier, if we're really going to be able to stamp down on the increase in cases. So I think the jury's out. And I think one of the reasons uh, for that is that there's a tremendous complexity in the messaging around some of these tiered systems. And also we tend to rely on sort of these things called administrative geographic units, which are things that the coronavirus doesn't really conform to itself. You know, COVID-19 doesn't mind uh, whether which local authority it's in. Um, it only minds about the people it's traveling with. And so my view is that we need to think more carefully about flows of people in and out of these areas between different tiers and um, what those impacts are on infection, but also how the people within each of the tiers uh, might be, be might be behaving differently, either through necessity or through a misunderstanding about the regulations that apply to them at any time. So um, I think it's a complex picture, and I think it's only going to get a bit more complicated as each region negotiates its own slightly different regulations which apply to the people that live there. And it certainly throws up some anomalies. Dominic Raab's own constituency has one street with one end in tier one and the other end in tier three. John, what are your thoughts? Well, I I agree that it's an incredibly complex picture and I think James draws attention to one of the real difficulties which is the way in which and much of this, um, much of the negotiations about the introduction of tiers is conducted with local authorities, but the boundaries of local authorities are often not a, a good fit for uh, managing this this process. So that's that that's a really significant problem to overcome. We've seen examples of some of the tensions that that gives rise to in places like Greater Manchester where the conflict between the mayor there and the, the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, and the government was partly about who makes the decisions and uh, how those decisions are made and how the consequences of those decisions are mitigated. That's a highly political process and creating coalitions, political coalitions across these borders to manage all of this has proved to be one of the most tricky aspects of introducing this system of tiers. And of course, the other thing which has happened with the tiers is that on on the face of it, we have three tiers now, which is meant to clarify and make make it easier for people to understand what they need to do, both in terms of official organisations and ordinary citizens. But in reality, the introduction of those tiers involves lots of local negotiations and we're getting tears within the tears as it were. So whether this is an effective means of stopping the spread of the virus I think is really an open question and what we've seen obviously in France over the last few days is, is the abandonment effectively of a regionalized approach to managing this and instead the imposition of a national lockdown and it's hard to see how we're going to avoid that in the UK uh, at the moment. 
Because James, there was a suggestion there from John about the actual allocation of the tiers is extremely difficult, even within a, a tier. Who is actually making the final decision on what gets included in which tier? Well, I think it comes down to a negotiation between, you know, what the research is saying and what the political ambitions are in terms of, um, you know, what the politicians and decision makers, both in the local level and the national level, what they think the population are able to sustain themselves. But also, you know, this idea that somehow you're, if you're not addressing, or if you're coming down too hard on restrictions, in, in, then that can have uh, economic consequences. But it's becomes very messy. I mean, I think the idea that you're able to uh, restrict the spread of COVID-19 within a local area makes a lot of sense. So if you're thinking about something that a classic disease outbreak or, or something like that, that, you know, if you've got good monitoring in the area, of course, it makes sense that um, if the outbreak occurs in um, a city, you know, in the northwest, you're not uh, affecting sort of the, the far southwest tip of England. You know, that's th the logic there makes sense. But of course, the political reality and, and, and the sort of complexity of the real world really steps in. And, and you mentioned um, Dominic Rubb's constituency. I mean, my, on my parents' own road, uh, they have to pass through a higher tier in order to to, to leave their street because they're one of these um, so-called split postcodes where effectively they're in one local authority that has a lower tier and then there's another one that has a, a higher uh, tier adjacent to them. And so even just trying to establish the information uh, around that because the NHS app says that they're in the higher tier. In fact, they're not um, based on their local authority. You know, effectively, it came down to who collects the bins, you know, which council is doing their bin uh, run. And that was the one that kind of established which one you're in. So on the ground, these realities are really complicated. And I think that's the the mess that we find ourselves in, in some of these cases where, you know, the logic is there that you can control things in a local way and you should be adapting things locally to the people that live there but the reality is that you know the world's a lot messier and people are moving around between places and there are certain political imperatives one way or the other that are contradicting or pushing the scientific advice one way or the other as well and so the simplicity of a national lockdown means that you do um, erase a lot of that complexity because we're all un under the same circumstances we're all in the same boat but of course that then has the trade-off which is that you know there are some areas of the country that will still have uh, relatively low rates but will still be under quite tough restrictions in order to help simplify that messaging and john i wonder if i mean i'm firstly wondering whether there were any urban planners or geographers on any of the sage or advisory committees and it's the flow of people as James has already mentioned, that is a critical part of all of this. So is there something about areas that have high flow rather than, you know, it's dictated by their built environment or their, their geography that make them more of a, a risk? Should we be thinking about tiering with regard to some of those factors? 
Yeah, I think there are some geographers uh, around the edges of these debates in the various committees which are advising uh, the government. I think that's very important because geography matters, as um, as James has in, is suggested, in, in, in lots of different ways in, in the organisation of this pandemic. Flows matter. You know, we're in the early stages of understanding what's actually happening here, and there'll be lots of analysis to be done afterwards. But I think even at this early stage, it's becoming clear that uh, there are certain kinds of communities which uh, seem susceptible to this virus in the same way that the individuals have underlying health conditions. Certain kinds of communities seem to have those underlying health conditions too. And that's that's part of what makes all of this uh, deeply political issue really. Is It's not just a case of simply following the science because in terms of designing lockdowns, the science is very helpful, but it's not necessarily very helpful in helping us to understand what the economic impacts of these lockdowns will be because they're hit, they're hitting different social groups and different places in quite different ways. So there's, I think there's in now enough emerging evidence to suggest that it's the poorest areas which are being hit to some extent hardest by the pandemic, but more particularly, I think, by the economic consequences of lockdowns and that complicates the picture of uh, both how we understand the, the the longer term impacts of all of this and what we we do about them and i think it also contributes to what you might call the recent politicization of the pandemic notably the way in which strong voices are emerging which is suggesting that in the north of england that the government's attitude to the north of england uh, has been in a sense discriminatory now whether whether or not you agree with that whether uh, you'd like to add more nuance to all of that. It seems to me almost secondary at this point. There's a widespread sense in parts of the country that we have a, uh, a government of uh, politicians, civil servants and scientists sitting in SW1, as it were, even if virtually, and making decisions which have impacts in places far away, uh, which can dramatically change the life chances of people over the long run. So, you know, so I, I see this as the emerging issue, really, which isn't going to go away in a, in a very uh, in a very easy way. And so, John, the the way that you measure the success of lockdown, from what you said, is not simply about whether the number of cases are falling or the number of hospitalizations, but actually a, a much longer term effect. Indeed. So, for instance, you, you know, when we we were all told earlier in the year to to work from home, stay at home, and save lives. That was much easier for some social groups than others, and that's something that which um, we need to understand uh, more about, and we need to mitigate in terms of the way in which we respond in terms of economic policies and and, and so on. We also know that the workforce in certain places in certain places finds it or a larger proportion of the workforce in certain places finds it easier to work from home. So there are certain cities uh, which have, let's say, a large professional workforces where working from home is, a, is an easy option for, a, for a, a very large chunk of the workforce. But in places which lack that uh, large professional workforce, that's much less of an opportunity. So a lockdown. Um, whether it's national or it's local, whether it's tiered or not, has highly uneven geographical impacts which go beyond the medical sphere into the in, into society, the economy, and, and and so on. And we live in a country with very large inequalities, including large geographical inequalities. The north-south divide, I suppose, is an obvious metaphor for these, although it's the reality is probably a bit more complicated than that. And one early prediction that I will make is that this pandemic will probably entrench and even deepen uh, those inequalities in ways that will uh, make dealing with them even harder in the longer run.
Indeed, and we've had a whole episode of this podcast on inequalities, which have had a real spotlight uh, shone on them. You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. And the UK isn't the only country using a regional lockdown system. Where else has the technique been employed and how do we compare with other countries? I mean, we mentioned earlier that you know, some countries have done very well. New Zealand is a, is, a, is a great example, or Singapore, some of the other Asian countries. But what about countries like us? How are they doing? In Europe, you mean you're talking about Europe primarily? Yeah. yeah. So, well, of course, Italy was the first place in Europe to have a severe epidemic. And they imposed a regional lockdown during the first wave. And then arguably they had a much more regional epidemic. We got a very generalised epidemic because we had multiple introductions from all over Europe during that half term week last February, primarily, I think. Um, people coming back from all over Europe and, and that caused a much more sort of generalised epidemic in the first wave. Interestingly, some countries like France, who seem to have a more localised epidemic are now arguing that they've got a more generalised epidemic this time round. So it's, it, it is really interesting to see countries that seem to be doing incredibly well, then letting up their guard and having really serious problems. I mean, the most interesting example is Czechia, one of the most interesting examples, which had high levels of, of social distancing and use of face coverings and really high levels of control during the first wave did very well. And then they all celebrated that the virus had gone away and they had a big party. And now they've got some of the highest rates in Europe. So if you, you know, it's not, it, it, it's, it's not clear that there's one formula and you certainly can't afford to let up your guard. Now, Germany, of course, that did much better, better, you know, had much lower death rates. They had early introduction of testing, very good test and trace capacity, probably pretty high levels of compliance with all the, the uh, social distancing measures, which have been, I think, difficult here. But now they are again seeing a rapid rise. But you can see them now taking quite restrictive interventions and Angela Merkel on, on the radio yesterday and recognising that they are, have now got a surging epidemic. But having said that, they have still got much lower infection rates than we have here. One of the most interesting things with regard to test and trace, because once, of course, an epidemic gets, a pandemic gets completely out of hand, test and trace is, is no longer of any value. But I know that we've discussed before, Anne, this idea that actually what you need to do is look at the, you know, look at it backwards, as it were, because the more we discover about the virus, the more we discover that some people are super spreaders and that going back to find out who people got it from is really important in trying to damp down those super spreaders. Yes, and people talk a lot about super spreaders. And, and I think what we have to look at, there are super spreading events, and that's important. That's some of the ideas of backward contact tracing. But actually, to me, the information we really need is to understand where are the prime source environments of transmission. Okay, so in, of the 23,000, how many cases it was we've had in the last few days, I can't remember yesterday's number, but it's it, it, those sort of levels of infection. Where are people getting this virus? Is it 
you know, what proportion of them are occurring in universities and university halls of residence, what proportion are occurring in care homes, what proportion are occurring in uh, NHS settings amongst staff and amongst patients, what proportion are occurring in workplaces and so on. And some of them will be super spreading events because we know people vary in, in infectiousness. But equally, you know, if you have a large number of people living together in a hall of residence and you get infection introduced and everybody isn't quite sticking to all the rules, it is very easy to get massive outbreaks, as we've seen. So I, I, we shouldn't overemphasize the spreading events, but we should try and understand what, what, the, what, what the key environments are. Because if you understand those environments, then you can work with those environments and with those communities to try and damp down transmission in specific places. But now, if you're looking at the data coming out of the REACT study, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be getting data tomorrow from ONS, what we're seeing is a continuing rise and really very widespread infection. So that kind of tracking down you know, specific outbreaks is an important part of this. But once you've got widespread community transmission, then you know that is a that is a, that, that's a more difficult call because you're going to get people infected in situations that aren't those kind of super super spreading events or restricted to particular environments. It feels like there's been more of a pushback to these particular lockdown measures than during the first lockdown, both politically and amongst the public. Do you get that sense too, Anne? Yes, and I think there's quite a lot of data to support that. I mean, during lockdown, I think many of the social scientists were quite surprised at the level of compliance with lockdown and also this tremendous sense of community spirit and people working together and praising the NHS workers. And remember, we sat on our balconies and we clapped and it was all, you know, very tough for many people, but something of a, a novelty and, 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 and people, you know, were, were compared, prepared to comply, I think, with some sense of promise that this would solve the problem. And of course, we did, it did, it was extremely effective. I mean, the virus rates came down for very low levels and we kept them low, continued to decline, actually, even as we crept out of lockdown rather cautiously. But then, of course, we didn't, I mean, my own view, and I, I you know, this could be debated, is that as we came out of lockdown, we didn't sustain the messages that the virus was still out there. And if we went back to life as it had been, then, it, you know, as night will follow day, of course, this virus is spread by close contact and the number of contacts we had. We increased our number of contacts. We opened up, you know, various environments where people could mix with one another. And a virus like this, unfortunately, it's in its biological nature um, to survive in human populations where there's sufficient contact for, for the R to be above one. And so from an R that we got down below one, uh, well, you know, to point eight or even lower, then we saw the epidemic driving, dying away. But as soon as you go back to those old behaviours, of course, the virus will tend to come back, which is what's happened. Now, and I, and I think, you know, the, the, the public got very confused on the one hand, you know, you can enjoy the summer, there's a bad winter coming, but go and enjoy the summer. We didn't sustain those messages over the long run, which I think other countries have been better at. And so we've got into a sort of boom and bust situation, which is exactly where we don't want to be. Having said that, you can see that countries across Europe are struggling in exactly the same way.
John, do you have uh, uh, briefly a view as to why that might be the case? Yeah, I think you're, you're getting a very strong pushback from some political leaders, uh, particularly in the north of England. I, I, I mean, I watch closely the events on, on, that unfolded in Manchester a week or so ago, um, in which there was the standoff between um, Andy Burnham and other leaders and the um, and the government. And I, and I saw that as very significant. The notion that the north or communities in the north have been left behind left out neglected ignored it's been around for quite a long time it was a it was a an element of the story around brexit i suppose and we know that there have been deep regional inequalities in this country uh, for a long time arguably much larger than in other rich countries oecd members members of the eu and so on but what i think was significant there was the way in which political leaders in in the northwest of England and Greater Manchester really strongly and passionately articulated a sense of grievance, which brought a new dimension to politics in England. We've seen that sort of politics in Scotland and Wales, and, and, and that's led to radical devolution of political power. That also fuels this kind of push against compliance, doesn't it? It does because I think one what the key the key notion in all of this that I think is the motivator in the way that people respond to what's required of them by the state is the notion of fairness and people feel that they're being treated unfairly. I think it's it's very difficult to ensure their compliance and there's lots of ways in which individuals uh, and politicians feel that their area um, has been treated unfairly in this process. Now you can argue whether you know how how fair that assessment is as it were but there's no question that that sort of mood is abroad you can find it in all kinds of polling in in the way in which the media in places like Manchester and, and other parts of the north are giving expression. And you're also seeing it in acts of petty defiance anyway I, I saw that somebody had registered himself as a company because you can have any number of employees at a work event. You know, people are also responding to uh, absurd conspiracy theories which are which are circulating on the internet and so on. And there's evidence, again, that some of those conspiracy theories have a greater appeal in some places than others. So it's a complicated picture, but I think at the, at the core of it is... You know, and what, what what generates the maximum of compliance among the, the largest number of people is the sense that the rules are being applied fairly. And if people don't believe that and they have evidence to support their beliefs, then I think that's a really big problem in, in ensuring social compliance. James, do we have a way of measuring compliance? Uh, that's a very um, controversial question. I mean, there are interesting ways you could go about it. I mean, in a very kind of specific technical sense, then you could uh, establish the extent to which, you know, there's there's activity within, within particular areas or even particular individuals within areas. If you're looking at, say, mobile phone call records or uh, data where you can see, you know, basically how many people are moving around, you could, of course, integrate information, kind of surveillance technology type stuff into some of the tracking and tracing apps and so on. But very sensibly there's a strong resistance to that idea and the government haven't pursued that route in their own app and only one or two other sort of countries have some of that data collected and so i think you can do it at that level you can of course look at it across other metrics i mean there's there's lots of information about the extent to which 
public transports being used, the extent to which there's traffic on the roads. You know, you can even look at basically how busy certain areas are. And so I think the technology exists, but I think we do have to keep in mind that compliance isn't is a very grey concept now because you know some people are just unable to comply with some of the regulations in the way that others might be able to. We all have our own individual risk calculation, and you know the ingredients that go into that are going to vary from one person to the next. And so within the measures and the restrictions, I think you know we have to assume that some people are going to be more compliant than others. But overall, if on average, there is a sufficient level of compliance across the population, that's what will get us to where we need to be in terms of reducing the numbers. Unfortunately, we've reached uh, very much the end of our time. But I wanted to ask you all for a brief response to the question, what's going to happen at Christmas? I don't know what's going to happen at Christmas. You know, we're in a difficult situation now. You're seeing across Europe governments putting in more interventions to to suppress the virus because if you you know if you're going to act as I said you, you, but with all infectious diseases if you if you if once you know you're going to, you need to act you're going to need to act you have to do it early because the the win is much better because you're starting from a lower base when you suppress it we also need people to try and to do everything they can individually and collectively to reduce transmission. I think it's incredibly important, as you've heard me say before, to try and absolutely minimise transmission in care homes and transmission of the virus between patients and staff, staff and patients, patients and patients, staff and staff in hospitals, because those are where the really vulnerable people are. Those are where the rates are going to be high. Those are where the deaths occurred. And so if you want to limit the number of deaths, it's really important to get a control of that really important to work with the public and to hear you know public voices about how we can work together um testing yes really important if the public are prepared most important to go home stay out of the way try not to transmit to their families which we don't give enough emphasis to when they when they're sick that's the, that's the biggest contribution one of the biggest contributions to stopping viral transmission so that compliance with staying home when you're sick and then is really important but then the government side of that or is the service side of that is being able to offer them a rapid test with a rapid result the more infection that happens the more difficult that is to do so when you can see yourself getting out of control early intervention is the key Um, and that's going to be I think the only way if we've got to try try and get on top of this now or uh, it'll be very difficult to have anything close to well I think it, it in any way it's going to be difficult to have a normal kind of Christmas but clearly some kind of get together would make an enormous difference to everybody and maybe that's the reward for what we've got to do now. Dear listeners my take from that don't order the turkey for 12 quite yet. John let's go to you what's going to happen at Christmas? I think we're going to see a severe strain on compliance at Christmas. Larger and larger proportions of the population are subject to uh, more and more restrictions. That's going to be very difficult to enforce over Christmas. You know, the, it, it, at that point, I think people will start making trade-offs between their risks of infection and the quality of life, and, and in particular how they sustain family relationships. Um, so I think it's going to be it's going to be very difficult. I think the government has extraordinarily tricky decisions to make in the coming weeks. James? 
Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. I think we may be incentivized to be more compliant in the run up to Christmas in the hope that the numbers come down uh, and so that there can be some relaxation. Whether when the time comes we've got there, I, I just don't know. And I mean, of course, Christmas is the landmark we uh, might be aiming for here, but then there is still some way to go after Christmas. And so got the kind of the dark days of January to come when morale always drops anyway, people feel less happier during that time after the, the fun of Christmas is over. And so if you're in a situation where um, there's still this uncertainty and we're still going along with these different lockdown restrictions and so on, and it's not kind of well communicated or managed, I think people are going to start feeling extremely unhappy during that period as well. So Christmas, of course, is important, but I think you know we're, we're in this for the long run still and we shouldn't be too... Uh, enthusiastic to have a kind of a full family Christmas if it means that we're going to pay the price for that, particularly sort of in the early months of 2021. And interesting, particularly for the elderly, you know, the over 80s who are thinking, well, how many years have I got left to have Christmases? And shall I trade off having a Christmas, which is really important to me, against perhaps uh, death sooner rather than later? And a lot of elderly people want to make those decisions for themselves. But anyway, on that rather gloomy uh, end, thank you so much, Anne, and to John and to James. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public, hooray, and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Karis Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Damon Johnson, Professor James Cheshire, and Professor John Tomney. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.